What is it we do when we work, rest, play? These things that take up so much of our lives. But what if there's a different question? Not about what we are doing, but rather, what are we looking for when we work, rest, play? Are we hoping that what we do, how we relax, or the hobbies we choose will somehow bring us the identity, purpose, and meaning we've been searching for? Are the true religions of our time work, rest, play? This week, I'd like to do, uh, I suppose, a little bit of theological reflection with you this morning. And sometimes we hear the word theological reflection, we think, oh goodness, that sounds a little bit rough. But I don't think that the kind of idea of theological reflection is something that we should necessarily be scared of or, uh, or worried about, but actually to kind of root ourselves down into what is maybe going on with God, what is going on biblically as we try and work out the various things that we converse about. So in order to do this, I want to begin with the creation narrative this morning. Um, Now, if you ask almost any person that's kind of experienced some sense of reading uh, the Bible, or particularly if you've engaged with the stories of Scripture in church, and particularly actually if you're in kids' church, uh, often if you ask people, well, what does God talk to the first humans about in the garden? Invariably, you get the same answer, right? Uh, From whether you're five or whether you've been in church 50 years, for some reason, the first thing we often say is, oh, God told them, don't eat from the tree. Now, theologically, this is unbelievably screwed up, right? I'm just going to lay it out there. Let me just, you know, I got a new work permit. I'm safe. I have job security. So we're going, we're going all out, right? <laughs> now, because think about what that says about your view of God, right? Your first view of God is ultimately, he tells us not to do stuff. Now, now that starts to shape everything that we think about God. And for some reason, for decades, this is how we've taught our children. The first thing that God said to people was, don't do stuff. And that starts to color and shape our theological particular picture of God. But actually, the problem is, that's not what God says first. In fact, what God first says to people is be fruitful, multiply, grow, manage these plants and animals. In fact, in Genesis chapter two and verse 15, it says the Lord God took the man, he took the Adam and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And all of this happens before we have a conversation about a tree and some fruit. Work it and take care of it. God's command to humans for creation is work with it and take care of it. Haven't we done well? Now, as a side note here, uh, and let me just explain a little bit about how I think about this. I think that theologically the creation story is profoundly important to the biblical narrative, but often not for the reasons that we think it's important or not for the reasons that we talk about it as important. In fact, what you often see, particularly within the sort of evangelical, Pentecostal and charismatic sides of Christianity, a tendency in the last sort of, 60 or 70 years to get bogged down in in what I would say are non-biblical uses of the creation story in order to sort of work it as a foil for scientific theory. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying here, right? But while you may want to use Genesis to make scientific points, and many, many Christians do choose to do that, please know this, 
that when you do that with Genesis, you are using the text in a way that the original authors didn't imagine you would use it. Right, so hear really clearly what I'm saying there. You may want to journey that, and there are many Christians that do, and they love Jesus, and Jesus loves them. But sometimes we're actually taking a text out of its original intention and starting to work it to do something that that text isn't itself trying to do. Maybe this text is trying to do something else. So when we choose that particular channel with the creation stories, what often then happens is what we read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 actually starts to get ignored for its actual purpose, which is to set up a vision for how God sees the world and the role of humanity within it and his relationship between the two. Right? So I'm not kind of staking my position in the ground here on the journey of science in the Bible. That's something, perhaps we should talk about that at some point in the future. But what is going on in Genesis when they write this? Now, I've said this before and I want to keep saying it, that we got to read this story because it's telling us a whole host of stuff about God. It's telling us a whole host of stuff about ourselves and a whole host of things about the world that we live in. So when we see this theological position that says you are in this garden, humans, to work it and take care of it, what we're seeing is that work becomes central to the biblical narrative, that, that work is actually there. Like, what's God doing in the world? What's God doing with humans in the world? What are humans doing in the world? And the creation narrative says they're working, and that's what they're here to do. So, and, and interesting as well, you'll notice, and this is really important, they're working and they're resting. So, the Bible always has this cycle in it. From the very, very beginning, there's this cycle of work, and then there's a cycle of rest. The cycle of rest is one day in the seven. The cycle of work is six days in the seven. And this is the cycle that God intends the creation to work within. Now, why is that important to observe at this point? is just when you're doing a little bit of theological work, notice that all of this is happening before a conversation about a tree, right? It's also happening before Adam and Eve disobey God. It's happening before sin enters the world. So when we, and this is important here, when we imagine a world without sin, do we imagine work as part of that? And what a lot of Christians find when they actually start to think theologically is that when you imagine a world without sin, we're kinda kicked back on the beach with a drink, with an umbrella in it, just chilling out going, isn't the world wonderful? Think about it the other way around. Often like in this conversation I'm saying, think what would a world without sin be like? But another way to think about it is, what do you imagine God's future to be like? And it's remarkable how often in conversations with Christians, when we imagine God's future, what will it be like when God puts all things right, we seem to just be doing a lot of singing in a lot of people's opinion. Just seems to be singing, endless singing. And if you're blessed with the kind of voice like I have, that doesn't sound great. You know, the idea of singing forever sounds more hellish than heavenly. And I mean, this is because of our skewed view of where God's put the world together, right? And we pick it up, and listen, preachers have been responsible for a lot of this, but actually start to read what the Bible starts to say about God's future. And it's remarkably similar to what the Bible said about the world before sin. What are humans doing? They're working it. 
In Isaiah's vision of God's future, they're still building houses, they're still farming fields, they're still looking after life. Like all of the normal stuff is going on, just sin hasn't destroyed it. And this is really important because in a lot of the creation myths around the time that Genesis was being formed, that basically work was part of the God's punishment. So, so if you look at the kind of comparative creation mythology that's going on in, in the sort of time that Genesis arrives on the scene, the sort of Babylonians are talking about this life of leisure and then the gods get angry with them and they give them work. But work forms part of the harmony and cycle of God's plan for the world. Work is central for what you would call a biblical anthropology. Work's central to what humans do. It's what humans do, and just notice this. It's the one thing we do and have incredible capacity to do. You can work six days a week and have a day off. That's in the Bible, right? You can cope with that. You can manage that. Our capacity is incredible. Now, maybe you've been like me. You see somebody sometimes, and they just look like, oh, my, look at that person's workload, and they just seem to be carrying it. In fact, we can carry so much work, we can almost get better and better at it to the extent that we can even do damage to ourselves. Our capacity to work is so high that we can almost ignore the damage that we're doing. And so, here's our theological position in a series like this, that work is biblical, and good biblical, not just in the Bible, there's a whole host of stuff in the Bible, you know, that is actually negative in that sort of sense, but work falls part of the story, it's in there in the creation. Now, I want to then think about the significance of that, and don't miss this, the significance of work for humanity is seen in God's assessment of his creation. Another piece that requires us just to make sure our nuances are correct. When God looks at the world, what is his opinion of it? When he creates this creation, what is his opinion of it? And again, we tend sometimes in our laziness to sort of say, and God made it perfect. But the Bible never says that. Instead, what the Bible says is God made it and it was good. Not perfect, but good. So the theologian Albert Walters says this, the earth had been completely unformed and empty. In the six-day process of development, God had formed it and filled it, but not completely. People must now carry on the work of development. By being fruitful, they fill it even more. By subduing it, they must form it even more. As God's representatives, we carry on where God left off. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill the earth with its own kind and will form the earth for its own kind. From now on, the development of the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. So what God does is he doesn't create this beautiful, polished, perfect world and we go and stuff it up, right? Which is often how we think about it in that sense. Actually, God's plan, and we did do some serious stuffing up of it. Stuffing up is a very theological uh, way of, of, of describing Genesis 3, but... <laughs> In, in the moment where God formed this creation, the plan was always that you and I would progress with this, that it would grow, that it would develop, that it would multiply and be fruitful. So what we do, our work, is essential to creation. But of course, there is Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3 is in there. So you get, you know, it's like what happens when you leave humans alone in the world? Well, you only need to read for two chapters to find out. And, and very quickly, sin invades this story. 
And again, we often talk about sin purely in terms of our relationship with God. And and you should talk about sin in terms of your relationship with God. But that's not the only impact of sin. Because what you also see in this creation narrative is that when sin enters the story, all of creation's relationship with God and each other becomes broken. So our relationship with God becomes broken, our relationship with each other becomes broken. That's the fundamental impact of sin. Which, by the way, shouldn't surprise us then that when Jesus is asked about what are the most important commandments that a human should do, he says you should love God and you should love your neighbor. You see what he's saying? He's saying you should start putting back together the things which sin has broken. But the implication, of course, are wider than just our human interactions and relationships, but the relationship with everything in this creation and also our work. So when God's working this process through in Genesis 3, verse 17, 18, and 19, this is what we hear said to humans. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, we have to navigate this carefully once again. So work remains central to what humans do, but now it's different. The relationship with God is now difficult. If you read the story on, they end up outside of Eden. But the relationship with work is now difficult also because now pain and sweat have become part of this process. Now, if you're okay with me pushing a little bit of a theory on this, I think these two things are then connected. I think that what we end up with as humans as a result of sin is essentially what you might want to call a disordered work view. Our perspective of how work happens and how we see the world in relation to work gets all sorts of muddled up. Now, I think, again, this is quite important to sort of position theologically in a conversation like this. Because underlying all of this, what we're then saying is that we need to be careful as humans, this side of the Genesis story, we need to be careful as humans of trusting our attitude towards work. Because our attitude towards work may not be as self-evident as we think it is. Our perspective on work are colored by the broken and disordered nature of humanity. And again, often what we tend to do, particularly in modern concepts, is assume that sin is purely spiritual in its impact. And what I think a theology of work pushes us towards is it spreads all of this out and says, actually, even your work, and not just your work, how you do it, but how you think about it, is colored by the way the world works. So Christians, we need to be alert to that. We have our spidey senses sort of switched on that sometimes the way even Christians talk to one another about work might be as a result of where we are in the continuum of God's story rather than what's actually biblically true. And so for me, this this disorder starts to stem from the disconnection of creation and creator. And so two effects that I want to talk about in in terms of this. One is, and a New York City pastor, Tim Keller, I think says this well, when he says what ends up often happening is we see work as something we need to escape from. 
Right? That can be one of the disordered effects of the way that we now engage with work. The other impact, I think, of, of a disordered work view is that we start to draw our validation from both the work we do, where we you know, hey, I'm at this particular career and that gives me something, and also the way that we then do that work. You know, if you've ever been tempted to say, you know, I, I work harder than everybody in this place and, uh, and I can't believe nobody notices. You know, that's sort of, those two things that we have, our validation starts to be drawn both in what we do and how we do it. So let's talk about this idea of, of escaping from work then. I, almost a sense of which we talk about work sometimes, uh, and this is not what I think is biblical, by the way. This is what I think I observe in our day-to-day -day interactions around work is that work becomes a necessary evil in the way that we talk about it. Now, we have some reason for talking about it like this. If you, if you head back into the kind of shaping of Western culture uh, that you see through the kind of Greco-Roman philosophers, you know, broadly contemporary actually to the New Testament, they, they generally talk about work negatively, right? Work is something that you should get out of as quick as you can. And again, a lot of the pagan religions around the time of Jesus also do the same sort of thing. But the Judeo-Christian faith always links itself back to this creation story and says, no, work is something that God built you to do, right? It's something you're supposed to do. It's the way you're supposed to sort of work things out. Scripture scripture never really conceptualizes the notion of an able-bodied person who doesn't work. Right? Now, now, hear me well when I'm navigating this. I'm talking about work. And one of our sort of challenges, I think, within kind of the Western context is when I say work, we immediately assume kind of, you know, paid employment, right? Uh, now, they may be different things, right? Uh, they, you might be, you know I know, some, I know some retired people who work harder than some employed people. I really thought that would get an amen from the grandparents. Uh, you know, and those grandkids, you know. <laughs> but, you know, but that can happen, right? You don't need to necessarily have money coming in to still be working at something. But scripture never really kind of conceptualizes the notion of the kind of, I've finished my work and now I'm on vacation now till the end of my life. Now, Part of the reason that scripture might think that way is that life expectancy was pretty low uh, back in those days and, and the economy uh, was such that most people wouldn't have been able to envisage the financial well-being to uh, continue without you know, paid employment of some sort. And to be fair, that's not that far back in our history that that would be true for us as well. It's a relatively recent adaptation that we can be wealthy enough to start to think about this notion of retirement in this sort of non-working, not really doing anything type sort of context. In fact, you go back as early, as recent, sorry, as 1875, it's Otto van Bismarck, uh, you know, you may recognize that name from some of your history classes, Otto van Bismarck proposed that the German government should provide financial help for, uh, for people who are over 70, right? That way he kind of conceptualized this notion that maybe the government should step in if you make it to 70. Now, when Bismarck was around, life expectancy was 46, right? So, so, he, you know, so he's playing it safe, right? Like if you can double your expected, expected chances of staying alive, maybe the government should help. So, you know, governments haven't changed as much. Um, 
And then, and then in 1935 in the US, Franklin Roosevelt, he proposed this idea that, that we create a retirement age, uh, and that would be 65, and at 65, you sort of step out of the workforce. But just notice the times we're talking about here, 1935. The reason Roosevelt wanted to do this was he wanted to move older people out of the workforce so that younger people could move into the workforce because they were right bang in the middle of the Great Depression. Right? So, so this sort of idea starts to sort of really kind of move in the modern world. And then what happens in the 1950s, pensions and insurance companies start to get involved and they start to push this notion of an idyllic life beyond work. And we start to see this kind of retirement as vacation notion start to develop in, particularly in the English speaking world, but in a lot of what we would often refer to as the sort of Western world. Of course, now be suspicious of this because the pensions and insurance companies, their way of you having this idyllic life was of course by investing with them. So there may be some uh, suspicion there. And and again, I want to be really careful with what I'm saying here, right? So that I don't, you know, you don't hear what I'm not trying to say. But I think then what happens, and we're really only talking about the last 50 to 60 years, I think this notion of retirement as the dream, right? Of, of, of the kind of vacation life post-work starts to contribute to a changing attitude to work in contemporary culture that I'm not convinced is biblical. And, and, and I think that needs a little bit of navigating for us as Christians. Now think about how that notion affects and impacts a society. Mitch Antony, in his book, The New Retirementality, says, retirement is an illusion because those who can afford the illusion are disillusioned by it, and those who cannot afford the illusion are haunted by it. So this idea of life as a vacation post-work, a lot of people tell me that this is much harder when you actually get into it than you realize, right? This is not easy to do nothing, right? So, so that needs, some, that needs some, some thinking through. But then what happens is another younger community and, 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 and uh, culture starts to grow, and they start to wonder, how will we ever achieve this ourselves? So the people that are living it recognize the challenges in it, and the people who think that that's where they're supposed to be going are haunted by whether or not they'll be able to get there. Which is kind of like almost all things in life, right? The grass is invariably not as green on the other side as you remember. But think about how this impacts us as a culture, right? So again, I made the joke earlier, but it's a common complaint that we hear about, and let me just pick on you know, the sort of group that we often do pick on this. It's a common complaint that we hear about millennials. You know, uh, you know the thing with millennials is they don't like working. You know, lazy, lazy people. And, and we say this, you know, I'm a borderline Gen X or millennial, so I don't know where I fit, right? But, um, you know, we, we say this as if we're the first generation in history to think that the generation following us are lazy. <laughs> right? right? And yet you can go back and find, uh, you can find Greco-Roman writers in the first century saying almost word for word what we say. So if it was true, right, the world would have stopped a long time ago because we're getting lazier and lazier and lazier and lazier. You know, when I was a kid, we started working at three. And, you know. <laughs> but just, let's just think about this for a second. Let's just, let, you know, and I'm not trying to use the term millennial pejoratively as often happens in contemporary culture. We say this though, they don't like work. Where do you think they got that idea from? They were raised in a culture where they dreamed they saw their parents and grandparents moving for was not working. 
right? They were raised in a culture that said, you should try and get out of work as quick as you can. You should try and retire as early as you can because that's the dream. But then, and is it any wonder you end up disenfranchised with the notion of work if everybody's modeled for you that we're just trying to get out of this and not do it anymore. But then when you end up in a culture as many young people are today, where the option of early retirement is looking increasingly unlikely for the vast majority, is it any wonder they just give up right at the start? It makes sense, doesn't it? I don't think I'm ever gonna do that. So what you end up with is millennials taking gap years or gap decades, as it maybe feels like to some parents when your basement still isn't yours. <laughs> you end up taking a gap year in which, and again, hear me well here, in which millennials in their gap year do all the same things that baby boomers do with their retirement. We tour the world, we go see stuff we always wanted to see, and we just explore and spend a bit of time for ourselves. I think you can actually track it culturally and say, yeah, it's probably fair enough to say maybe the us older generations have kind of modeled something that we can't entirely blame our younger people for being disenfranchised with. Now, clearly, it's way more complex than that, right? You know, uh, that we're going to unpack in a sermon on a Sunday morning. But I think it's worth thinking about are we, particularly as Christians then, carrying a faulty theological view about work that is passing on negativity to our younger generations? I just think that maybe perhaps bears some thinking about. Also then, the second thing that I want to chat about in that, just so while we leave that one stewing over there, is what happens when work becomes our identity, so let's shift gears just ever so slightly. And it's interesting to note right, that the effect of seeing work as something you should escape from isn't that we work less, but that we work more. Right? We actually work harder, and we actually work more hours, and we actually spend more time at work. And bizarrely enough, we seem to like this. You know, and somehow, although we, our core idea is I've got to get out of this working thing as quick as I can so that I can retirement, I can get retirement and, and sort of live the, the dream, you know, what happens is we spend more and more time at the office and more and more time in our workplace. It becomes central to our lives. Uh, David Zahl in his book, Seculosity, that I mentioned in my last teaching on this series, he noticed how that transitions in our cultural sense of, of just how we perceive the world. So think about this. Right? In the last 30 years, think about the sitcoms you work, you watch. Right? 30 years ago, you watched like Roseanne, you know, and Home Improvement. Where were they? Where did they take place? Like in a, in a living room, in a backyard. You know? And then we transitioned to, like my generation, we grew up watching Friends, right? The idyllic life of just permanently living in a coffee shop. And some of us are still trying to make that happen, right? You know? But then think about the most successful sitcoms of the last 10 years or the last 15 years, The Office, Parks and Recreation, 30 Rock, all of them taking place in the workplace. So even in our leisure time, we're watching what's going on in workplaces. Amazon employees apparently make this joke on a regular basis. Work-life balance is for people who don't like their job. <laughs> that hurts a little bit, that doesn't it? <laughs> The thing is that work has always been a really good measure of our value in self-identity. It's what, it, what we do does seem to say a lot about who we are in the world. It's our, it's our face, essentially. It's, the, it's what we present to the world about ourselves. And also, work is easily measurable. 
Your status as an employee or as a boss or as a working person, your status as a working person, let's say it like that, is much more straightforward to assess than your status as a wife or a parent. How do you know whether you're good at your job? That's actually quite easy to assess. But are you, are you, you know, I mean, are you doing any good as a parent? Well, I don't know. Give me 20 years. Let's see what happens, right? You know, <laughs> happy Mother's Day, by the way. Um, uh, Also, our job can often mask our emotions and our uncertainties about ourselves with what is ultimately a socially acceptable addictive behavior. You work hard, work longer, you get praised for it. It can, it can, mask, it can be entirely addictive. It can be entirely us being caught up in really unhealthy behavior, but it's socially acceptable. You know, have you ever known of someone or perhaps uh, yourself used work as a cover for your loneliness or work as a cover for your grief or work as a cover for your uncertainty? So David Zal says it like this, when work becomes the primary arbiter of identity, purpose, and worth and community in our lives, it has ceased to function as employment and begun to function as a religion. Or at least we have made it responsible for providing the very things to which we used to look to God. See, God always wanted us to work, but he wanted our value and identity to come from him. So maybe there's a self-checkup that we take in something like this, right? Uh, how much value do you gain from your work? How much, how much sense of identity do you gain? I don't want a show of hands, by the way. <laughs> how much identity do you gain from what you do? So the way to test that is simply this. Have you ever gone to work sick? Why did you do that? Like, was it for the one reason, like, I don't have any sick days left, or was it to impress someone? Was it to present this you-can't-stop-me attitude that says, I'll keep going regardless? Or perhaps a better question, actually, is this. What's your attitude to someone else when they take time off sick? Like, and that often uncovers our perspective on where we perceive work in the process. Ah, such and such, oh, they're always off. Does our production at work outweigh our interest in human pain? And what does that then tell us about how we see work? Essentially, as you might imagine, what I'm saying is that work is a really bad religion and a very disordered place to gain your value and your identity. Fred Smith, uh, president of The Gathering, which is a uh, a sort of big group of uh, sort of entrepreneurial-minded uh, philanthropists says this, it's like drinking salt water. Looking for significance from external things is still competing for somebody else's okay. It just leaves you thirsty. So theologically, there's a sense in which what we're saying is this, your appraisal is not who you are. Now, fascinatingly, of course, management experts are beginning to realize in their abundance that appraisals have actually have minimal positive impact on people. In fact, most of the time, appraisals seem to do more harm than they do good. Now, as a Christian and, a church, and, and someone who's interested in church history, I find that fascinating because Luther figured that out 400, 500 odd years ago. He was like, wait a minute, if you set bars for people to reach, do you know what happens? They miss it and give up and feel bad. And so what's interesting is 500 years later, most of our management culture is borrowing ideas 
that we figured out in the church a long time ago, it doesn't work like that. Because our workforce isn't driven by grace. And therefore we set standards and bars that are theologically faulty. At a core of Christianity is this notion that salvation can't be earned, that your identity is found in a God who loves you exactly as you are. And yet our workforce is often built around the notion that everything about your value is earned. And bizarrely, as Christians, we often miss that. We often miss <laughs> that this is how God treats us. And then we step into the workforce and treat everybody with a different parameter. Christians, as bosses, often don't let their theology impact their management style or their leadership style. And I think that should be thought about. I think that should be considered. So where do we go from here? Well, I wanna simply suggest this to us this morning. Work is far better if you do it as worship. What if we were to root ourselves again in the creation story, where work becomes part of our worship? The novelist and Christian apologist Dorothy Sayers often said that work was the medium in which we offer ourselves to God. See, humans are brilliant when we create stuff. Humans are excellent when we work at stuff because that's when we participate and continue God's creation process. This is what we were talking about right at the start. So when a designer chooses a particular color or a carpenter shapes a table a particular way or the architect the shape of the roof or the teacher who makes the complex simple, the scientist that explores the edges of knowledge, the accountant who orders things beautifully, the manager who cares about emotions. All of these ways of doing your work can be participation in the image of God and they can be worship. Sayers continues with this slightly longer quote by saying, nothing has so deeply discredited the Christian church as her squalid submission to the economic theory of society. I believe, however, that there is a Christian doctrine of work. She's writing in the 1940s, by the way, when she says this. Very closely related to the doctrines of creative energy of God and the divine image in man. The modern tendency seems to be to identify work with gainful employment, and this is, I maintain, the essential heresy. That work is not an expression of man's creative energy in the service of society, but only something he does in order to obtain money and leisure. When school teachers teach in order to reach particular goals rather than from the joy of educating, or when someone accepts a promotion out of their skill set just for more money, we're being forced away from the creative image of God and into something other than that. It's harder to worship God in what you do when worship isn't a factor in the decisions you make about what you do. When I was a kid, my parents used to put this, had this verse in my bedroom next to my desk from Colossians chapter three and verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now this was an instruction from Paul to oppressed slaves, which is maybe a strange verse to put on your kid's wall. <laughs> now, 
Paul isn't supporting or minimizing slavery here, and that's an important side note to make. But what he is doing is again removing the sort of sacred-secular divide and suggesting that even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, there's still a way to do worship. Because worship then adjusts our perspective. Think about this again from a creational theology perspective. Paul is giving this oppressed slave full humanity to express their right to serve God in worship in the work that they do. So maybe a biblical theology of worship actually begins in a really obvious place. (laughs) Just be good at your work. Like if it's Christ you're serving, if our work is a form of worship, then, then be good at it. And being good at it is probably important. Christians should probably be good at the jobs that they do. They should probably be good at the work that they do. They should probably work well at it. Now notice what I said there, work well. Okay? It's too often work hard becomes our measure of success. But what does it look like to work well at it? What if our work became an expression of our love for God and each other? And that was our reason for trying to be good at it. See, I think that Christians should be really good employees. And I also think that Christians should be really good bosses. Because I think not simply because that expresses, as often has been the case, and that's how I'm gonna lead people to Jesus, right? Becomes being good at what you do becomes some sort of evangelistic strategy. And you may want to talk about that, but at core, the reason we should be good at what we do is because we love God. And because it's part of us working out what it is that God made us to be. The Calgary pastor, uh, John Van Sloten, says this, every job has its own unique rights, actions, and forms of communion with God. So every job's gonna have its own way of doing worship. For an electrician, it works one way, for a carpenter, another way. For you, in your job, it happens through your typing style, therapeutic touch, free throw technique, concrete finishing brushwork, or the way you handle a product. Because it's worship, so it should be good in its own way. Because as the creation story shows us, that's what we were built for, but not where our value comes from. There's a church in Dumfries in Scotland, and what they do at the end of every single service that they have is they all turn and face the exit door of their church. And as they face the exit door of their church, they say this benediction, which I'd like to pray over you this morning. They say, may the love of God sustain us in our working. May the light of Jesus radiate our thinking and speaking. May the power of the Spirit penetrate all our deliberating. And may all that is done witness to your presence in our lives. Amen and amen.